This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. You may remember the 1980s movie Highlander that chronicled the life of Connor McLeod, a Scottish immortal who navigated historical events, love, and sword fights with other immortals seeking to decapitate him, taking his power while exclaiming, there can be only one. Although the story is fiction, it plays out in reality and professional spaces in the lived realities of Black professionals. Today, we're joined by Dr. Isaac Carter, who, for over two decades, has steered change management for profit and not-for-profit sectors. He is the founder of Coaching Imperative, a firm dedicated to helping leaders, teams, and organizations achieve their goals by creating dynamic and collaborative cultures that promote individual and institutional well-being, cultural awareness, and empathetic relationships. Isaac, welcome. Let's get uncomfortable, man. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Yeah, I appreciate you making the time. I wanted to kind of let's level set by you talking about kind of level set your work for us. Talk about the Mm -hmm. work that you currently are doing, the work you've done in the past, the work you're doing now and the work you're looking to do in the future. Yeah, well, so like to to be brief, I I basically have been in higher education, a little nonprofit stints um, on the nonprofit side of being on the boards, being a chief of staff, working grassroots politics, things, issues like voting, uh, gentrification, policing, those kind of things, and or things that keep me interested and kind of help keep me grounded with who I am as a person and how I grew up, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, originally. And uh, mostly it's been the higher education. I consider myself a higher education expat. I was a chief student affairs officer. I was a chief enrollment officer at law school. I left as a tenured faculty member, associate professor, and a program chair for a graduate program in uh, social justice and higher education. And then from there, you get the illusion that tenure is going to make everything all right. And it still wasn't all right. Uh, The process to get it and even afterwards. And that dissatisfaction plus location led to coaching imperative where I wanted to take my skills and experiences that I've had from nonprofits, higher education, put them into a package where I could help organizations, leaders and teams, but do my own spin on it, using emotional intelligence, cultural intelligence, music, art, in ways that really can help people see themselves differently. And then from that different perspective, hope they would gain a different perspective and how they see each other and how they do their work. Well, and you have, like so many of us, so many black and brown folks, my wife and I are doing a session at the National Conference for Race and Ethnicity. And so my wife and I submitted a proposal that was accepted that is called um, Trailing Spouse Don't Apply to Us. Mm. And it's all about dual career couples of color in higher ed. We -hmm. are both in the same work. Mm -hmm. We have in October of 2023, 
six months, that was six months that of Linda's tenure, my wife's tenure in the College of Social Work at the University of Kentucky, that is the longest we have ever worked at the same institution. <laughs> wow. That's the reality, right? Yes. We lived in the same house. Mm -hmm. We both are in the same work, student affairs, student success, work, transformational work. And the reality for some of our white colleagues is, oh, they just take for granted not only them and their partners work for the same institution, but their kids, their kids' kids, their grandkids. Mm -hmm. And then you have us who have kind of have to take this winding route. And when your partner isn't satisfied, you're not satisfied, right? Um, because you have that level of symbionts with each other and that, so she and I, it, that's why we love being where we are is mm -hmm. because this is the first time we've been at the same place. So we will go to Kentucky basketball games and football games and wear Kentucky blue because the institution has finally said, you being here matters enough and it isn't just about one to be happy it's about all to be happy mm -hmm. so um i understand that winding path and thinking when you got there and then mm -hmm. you ain't got there right <laughs> yes so talk about you and i talked about this idea and so people who don't know the movie highlander right you can kind of can you level set highlander but we talked about black highlander syndrome but talk about the movie highlander with sean connery shout out to the 80s kids who may not know what highlander is all about yeah so it's a science fiction movie and it's built upon these idea of these supernatural beings that have been born um given some level of mortality but it comes at a cost they have to duel each other um to survive and in this case, they can coexist if they want to, but there's always someone who doesn't want to coexist and be the only one. And that is the person that the Highlander uh, syndrome idea came from for me. I think as you talk about the different winding roads you've had and my journeys, as I think about myself as well, I think it's important that we understand that when institutions bring people on, there is already in some ways a archetype for how you're supposed to be and it may not be known to you occasionally you'll get a little view of it in the interview process because they may have you meet that one or two people and then at some point they come tell you about what that campus is and how they've been there and how they survive but part of that survival becomes distance is created if you decide you want to do something else if you decide you want to um not saying they weren't uh, resisting um, the dominant dialogue. I was not saying they weren't active in trying to make things better, but if you choose a different path than the one that's accepted, then you butt up against the heads of not only the institution, but those who always have been there and those Black people who have done their work and they have definitely carried their torch sometimes, <laughs> getting to a point where they're offended at your movements and actions on the campus because you're not doing them in the way that they would want them to be done or the way they feel they should be done. Well, and in the movie, the way it is, is these folks are immortal, but they have to, they're literally dueling with swords and it follows Connor McLeod, who's mm -hmm. the Highlander, and it follows him through his entire life, and he lives through wars and love and all of these things, and crazy, crazy head chopping off, because that's the only way you can kill immortal, is you have to chop off their head. And then the first thing the Highlander says, or the person, the other immortal says is, 
there can be only one, right? Yeah. And this idea that then the power, that's the part of when you, when you gave me this piece and why I wanted to talk about it, because they have to yell, there can be only one, right? And they are already above the regular mortals, mm-hmm. but they are navigating through them with this idea of we can be only one and there can be only one and how that mindset impacts us in higher education and how then what happens is after they cut off the head the power from the other one enters their body yeah talk about how the black experience misogyny anti-blackness all those pieces feed into these ideals where we feel like whether it's in higher ed or anywhere that we have to fight each other because there can be only one at the table. Yeah, I think the sad part is, I think if you look at the history of the African and enslaved African in the United States and how it's gotten its freedom, and a freedom, I'll use that word loosely, it has been through these stages of literally battle. <laughs> I mean, still to date, the Civil War is the most uh, casualties in any war in, in US history. And there's a reason for that. And so as we think about higher education being a product of this colonial design of this Western expansion of capital, it's definitely been rooted in this kind of volatile nature of how to actually be. And so when we think about what you just were offering up as we think about our campuses and as Black people on the campuses trying to make different movements to expand options for students, to help them matriculate, and hopefully help them graduate with not only a, a degree, but a sense of who they are and not trying to have to be an imposter or feel like an imposter. They could be the authentic selves. That journey takes people on different paths. And I think what you've seen, I think when you look at 2012, when you think, look at how higher education, looking at um, Black Lives Matter, looking at the expansion of other kind of movements, women's rights movement, LGBT movement, young people on the campuses are being outright and vocal about what they want and I'm very much in part helping students do that. Uh, that was part of what I felt my job was to do. Whether it was not in the actual job description, that was my job. If I had some knowledge and skills, then definitely do that. And in my experience, I've actually made courses out of it or weekend retreats where we teach students organizing and we teach students how to have campaigns. The backlash is that those things have to find someone to take out to figure out who is helping people in this way organize who are those people and why aren't they doing it like Steven and Django instead of Nat Turner. And that's graphic, but in terms of look at the social depth in terms of blackness and anti-blackness and blackness injury and how, you, how many careers have been ruined or stopped out because of an inability to be able to be authentic, it's a serious thing. And when we look at the matriculation rates, particularly black men in, in school, and we keep saying that we have to have role models for them. Well, who wants to stay and be a role model for them when they are constantly being under siege themselves? Right. One, well, I, I remember I was talking to a group of students. We do these campus-wide registration events and students were just kind of walking by. And at some point I kind of have a rule. If you're black, you ain't walking by me. Like you're going to speak, you're going to say hello, we're going to check your schedule, we're going to make sure you're good because your auntie, your grandmother, somebody in your family would say, um, 
you don't see many of that kind of brother. Let's make sure. And so these two brothers were just like, nah, man, I'm good. We're good. We're good. I said, that's how I know you ain't good because Mm -hmm. I'm 50 and I'm not good. How are you going (laughs) to say you're good? You're not good. And Mm -hmm. finally, this is what got them to stop, Doc, is I said to them, hey, let me just ask you one question. Is it hard being black at a PWI? Like, shit, yeah, it's hard. I said, yeah. How hard do you think it is being black faculty and staff at a PWI? And they was like, oh, yeah. And I said, so I and my colleagues work in a place of trauma 100% for a reason to lessen your trauma. And you won't effing stop? Mm-hmm. And they was like, bro, my bad. We didn't, we, we, we wasn't thinking. I said, you're so used to not seeing me that you don't see me. Mm-hmm. Why do you think I'm here? So talk a little bit about how what, you, what you're talking about with my background in theology, it sounds like a calling to me. Mm-hmm. Black folks that choose to work in higher ed spaces, I haven't met many of us that aren't doing that because of some higher purpose or calling. Oh, yeah. Right? We're, we're choosing to work in places so we can break the wheel. We'll go yeah. now. Now we're going to go from another uh, science Bye-bye. fiction. Yeah. Now, now we're going to go to Game Little of Thrones. <laughs> but we're trying to break the wheel, right? And so part of the reason why we aren't accepted in those spaces is because the called are never accepted in the mm-hmm. spaces. Our job is to push for the people and to push against the processes that have done harm. So talk a little bit about how those spaces create a culture to where we feel like I can be the only one, just like I'm gonna be the HNIC, or just like (laughs) Stephen and Django, or the House Negro and the Field Negro. Yeah, I think part of it is that in our own communities, we have in some ways stepped away from the idea that we think see people who are educated, I'm gonna say this about blackness, that when people encounter black people on campus, it's like, oh, I mean us, us 50 year olds, that somehow we not black no more because we here and they there, but they're there though. <laughs> but they still gonna tell you how black you are. Um, and for me, being a big fan of the feminist movement and that's being very much core to with my beliefs like Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells, the things they did in terms of actually helping free people, their minds, also bringing attention to things that were um, outside the scope of what people might actually think was important. And in my way, what I do is that's how I created my hip hop course when I started out early on in higher education. I created a hip hop course as a call to all those youth, to all those people who said, hey, uh, they walk by me on campus. I say, what's up? They don't do the nod. I'm getting mad and frustrated, but I'll see them at, you know, the first day in class. And at first day of class, we get to say hip hop is this black experience. And what it's built on is community. So it doesn't matter that I'm the professor and you're the student. We're here to have a shared experience together. And we all have things that can help each other maintain ourselves in this place. And I tell them, I appreciate it when you come by my office just to say, what's up? I appreciate it when you asked me, do you want to play whatever 2K or whatever came out? I appreciate it when you give me personal invites. Do you want to come see the sporting games or, hey, do you want to do an intramural team? 
or do you want to support? That's how the community gets created. But the thing that thing that Adam that you were talking about that is very frustrating, what has been frustrating, is that for my 25 years on campus, no one ever mistaked me for a professor, first off. I'm talking about students, family, and other people. I'm always, what team do I coach? That's what I gotta be. Then somehow they won't say it. Word, word, do I cook? And until some racial lines have changed, it used to be, did you work in the, in, in the grounds? What grass do you cut? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that is what people are walking into. So you think if it's families and students and other people coming to campus and they see black people and they think, especially a black male, and they can only think of this one thing, what does that say about society before they got there? And it just really demonstrates the difficult tasks you have to be like, hey, you need to see all of me. And not because I want to be seen. I want to be here to be a resource for you because I want you to hear because this is my mission. Right. I right. went to a PWI. Right. And in my first semester, my friends got their car blown up by a, what we think of, uh, let's say KKK, neo-Nazi, whatever, and saying, we don't want to see you in our neighborhood. It's outside of suburbs of Chicago. So my first experience, I come from St. Louis, all black community. I go to this PWI, I'm on the team, and my, two of my teammates get their car blown up for who they went out with. And then that led for me to help and my peers to say we wanted a multicultural affairs director. This is in the, in the early 90s. And we got a multicultural affairs director. And Mr. While I Love My Parents, my mom and dad are block unit, civil rights people, 100%. But my college, my college time could not be more defined by Mr. Richard Hazley, who was the person that we had hired to be the multicultural affairs director because he was the first person to help me think about being a student the first professional as the organizer. And how can you bring people to a campus and organize them so they can not only get their goals met, but we can support each other in the community to make sure that all of our needs are met. It's interesting on how so many of our stories run parallel to each other, right? There's nothing that you're describing that doesn't sound like Drake University in 1990 mm -hmm. for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, down to playing the sports and doing all the things. One of the things that's interesting to me is how there's this still this idea that black faculty and staff are for black students, right? And one of the some of the great work that that I've had the privilege to do, it has disproportionately benefited, right? The retention work, the campus-wide student success work, the disproportionately involved, engaged students have been our black multiracial Latinx students, right? They have been. But the truth is, if you get us, it gets everybody. The hood and the holler ain't that big of a difference, no, right? And, and so if, if you can get, because the front porch works for everybody, you know, the reality is certain cultures have went into a back deck culture, but those cultures still originate from talking to people. Mm -hmm. And so the the part that our campuses, and I, I want you to talk about this, that they forget is that I was walking across campus today and I had, because this is the first week back. So I had students stopping me, giving me hugs, giving me high fives, telling me, hey, hey, Adam, love you. Um, hope your family's doing well, all that. And I was walking with a colleague of mine who's a brother who said, 
it's crazy. Like you walk across student, walk across campus and it's white students and Latino students. He said, yeah, it's black students too, but I wish people could see how you move and how the genuine relationships you have with students, regardless if they're black or they're not. Because if you can build those relationships, see, every student feels the call. Mm -hmm. All of them do, because they feel the care that comes from it and that purpose. Talk about how the presence of black faculty and staff is so critical. I say critical because certain folks are talking about critical race theory, right? And thinking that the campuses are places where we're indoctrinating students. But for people like you and me, it's just about loving students and caring about them. So you can begin to start getting them to think differently. Talk about that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the part of the Black Afrocentricity that people don't understand because they they lump into this Black trope that it's all negative. And you say, like, Black studies or Black Lives Matter, it's always met with a negative. And in not understanding our culture and our historical nature of our culture, it's about harmony, collectiveness, relationships. Look at, you know, the Black feminist epistemology, Michelle Collins and her work, you know, talking about empathy, dialogue, care, power. I mean, those are the things that are, are core to our cause. And I think that one of the things that you've hit on that's important is that I got this advice early on in my career. If you walk across a campus doing your interviews, Isaac, and the brother or sister is walking with you who only knows one group of people, you don't want to work there. Because what he had told me, again, it's Mr. Hazley, when he got us organizing, it wasn't creating just a Black student union. We already had that. He made us get into the university resource planning. He made us get into... The, the, the groups that plan all the activities, the, the spring fling boards, he made us get ourselves and our tentacles into the campus community to leverage all the resources. And you watch him move and he could be comfortable coming by to the room, talk their stuff to you, blah, blah, blah. And then he's up on stage doing an opening welcome. And then he's up sometimes up in the chapel because he has some you know, reverend skills and he give that inspirational talk. He was multifaceted. And that's the kind of person that I tried to be myself in the career. But I think the danger part of that, or at least what has become professionalized in that, is that you can get caught up in trying to be this thing and forget the purpose. The, the purpose for raising your profile is not for your profile, hopefully only. Not saying I'm hating to get people, make your money, get your cash, get your VP, your president, not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying along the way, if your purpose and your passion will still does connections, it was still there to get those people and the resources to people where they need them to help those leverage those things that are particularly prey upon communities of colors and black and brown students and get their resources. Because hey, when you have mentoring programs, they work for other students, too. When you have student support programs, they work for other students, too. And understand that the campus community should be divided. Go to one school. So why, so why can't we just do that, but then let us use different ways? And I think the tension that comes from that, though, when you start moving in spaces and you know everybody, you're going to run up against someone who was that person before you. Now, what do you do? Part of what we haven't always done well is that exchange generationally and on college campuses has become very problematic or it can be contentious because of things like tenure and someone has been very fixed in their ways and have a lot of power, a lot of knowledge, and it can be something that you get now you're contesting. But it doesn't have to be that way. You know, I just watched uh, over the over the break. 
Um, but this, I'm saying some names now, and after the Cat Williams interview, every name I say is because I was watching over <laughs> over the break. The headliners looking at Chris Rock, Kevin Hart, Dave Chappelle. But I was going to say how they were trying to say as examples, we can all be goats. We can all be here. We can all be great in our own way without saying we're competing with each other as a pie to share. It's this idea, Isaac, because I wanted to make sure to hit this in. It's this idea that a certain generation ascribed to or believed in that was, we have to work twice as hard to get just as far. Mm -hmm. And to me, that isn't blaming the racism, anti-blackness, misogyny. It's blaming the other person of color, the other woman, the other intersect mm -hmm. person who just wasn't willing to work hard enough. Mm -hmm. Like, so I'm here not because of grace. I'm here because I outran racism. I mm -hmm. outran misogyny and anti-blackness. Those are some of the things to me that create this idea that if you put on, I call them the bow the brothers with bow ties. Every right. campus got brothers wearing bow ties. They just wearing bow ties. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's that, is it, a, is it about style or is it about substance? Yeah. Right? Are you substantively adding things not to the work as opposed to trying to feel like you have to floss your resume to feel like you're above just the other N-words? Yeah. And I think that's the HNIC, the head Negro in charge. That's the idea that can only be one, the Highlander, and look, because I made it. The only way you can make it is to camouflage yourself in this particular garb. And I think that what you're saying is the bow tie is nothing wrong with that. But then rock your dashiki, rock your jersey, rock, rock, rock your new your new sneaks, whatever you wear, join the Air Force One, whatever your thing is. Like give people the full menu so students and faculty and staff can see you in the multifaceted way that you are. I can tell you this from experience, it's funny. When I lived in PWI worlds where I've been, if I wore my, when I wear my, I'll call my St. Louis gear, I can walk anonymously throughout stores, departments, fairs. No one says anything to me. And then if you see me with my suit and tie on, all of a sudden there's Dr. Carter. And it's funny, but you really, people that you know, you work with every day. I've had walk by me because I'm in different clothes. And because they don't want to see you because you have to wear the uniform that says he's a good one. Right, right. I have a friend who um, he called it flashing his resume. He would talk about getting on an airplane. And for all y'all who are not people of color, and maybe my colleagues who are my peoples who are not people of color will, will live this life. But we get on an airplane and we all wear the same uniform. I'm gonna wear some sneaks and maybe some sweats, a sweat, a hoodie, some beats and some J's. That's mm -hmm. how I'm getting on the airplane. It don't matter how many degrees I got, how many letters after my name, how much money I make, or often how old I am. Because now that the Gen <laughs> Xers are in charge, hey, we can buy, we can buy Jordans. Our music, just so you know. That's right. So we getting on the airplane bobbing our head to, um, today I, I drove home to Big Daddy Kane today. Mm -hmm. So this is how we flow. And so this brother would talk about how we would sit next to white people on the plane and he would purposely pull out his laptop and put it on his lap because his laptop because he could see you know how you feel their reaction mm -hmm. like oh 
I'm a little nervous around him. So he would pull his laptop bag out because his laptop had a sticker from Dartmouth where he got his graduate degree. (laughs) And think about, forget about what that says about the racism Mm -hmm. in the bodies of white folks. What is that saying in his body Mm -hmm. to say, I now I'm okay because I went to, no, you just a Negro with a Dartmouth degree. Let's just say it. Right. Yeah. That's that's those those pathologies and those ideas that feed into us. One of the pieces that I wanted you to talk about, because um, I learned this from an old head when I started community organizing in AmeriCorps back in 1994. God help us. Um, we were at an event where they were recognizing the mayor's office was recognizing organizations that contributed. And afterwards, I was sitting with some old heads and I was like, man, that organization didn't do shit. Why are they getting an award? And he Mm -hmm. said, you know what? That's how you know if you stop doing work for the people, that the power recognizes you. Mm -hmm. So how does that play out? What advice do you have for black and brown professionals in higher ed? Because we have to survive. We want to thrive. We want to do all the things. But we all are grounded in the work. And at some point, you ain't going to be loved if you're doing the work of the people. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in that kind of analogy, it's like, can you get a Grammy and then get a B to hip hop honors? Like, it's, the thing is, we can do both. I just feel like what you said, what comes up in our bodies and how we hold that trauma is that we feel this. We feel there's only one choice. It is to say I'm from Dartmouth. It is to say I have a darker degree. It is to say that I live in this neighborhood because if it's not one of those things, if you didn't go to that that Ivy League school, if you didn't live in that good neighborhood, if you didn't have that degree, somehow you are just one of who? One of us? Yes, you're one of us still. And even if you don't have a degree, you never went to school. You know your whole family, they still sit in the forefront and say, hey, What's up, college boy? You're back. That's one of us. And we can't forget that that is part, the whole entirety is us. Trying to make it and get the freedom papers so you can walk freely on on the plantation can't be the only goal. If you don't have people, when you, at graduation, if the most, the kid who didn't, wasn't supposed to make it, you've helped three or four times get kicked out and get back in, when his family and their family says thank you, and then later on in life he tells you or she tells you they're doing these things and they go to their family and doing breaking the chain that will the will within our own communities, that's what that's the value. Being a being whatever kind of role you are, getting some kind of award, you know, is what's cool. But the other side of that is like, who are you helping be awarded? Who are you helping get awards? And I think that we sometimes in our communities, because the professionalization of this, we got to show our degrees, show our certificates and whatever. We're not showing ourselves and our multiplicities. That's why it supports the racism of institutions, because they say, see, this is how they have to be. If they don't fit into this, because they do, they're doing I didn't tell them to do it. They did it themselves. And this is where my friend Carl or Jerome or Latika or Tanisha, that's where they act. Then they all must act in that way. Because in many times, that's the only really real interaction on a regular basis they're having with a person of color. Mm. And that, 
And I wanted to talk about this because shout out to Dr. Claudine Gray, who I guess she resigned. But see, everybody in these liberal campuses, so-called liberals, talk about that was just horrible what those conservatives did to her. Mm, were conservatives. You, you get my point? That, let's be honest about that. There was not conservatives. I want to be straight up. I'm glad you brought this up. Um, a friend of mine, Zach Ritter, and I, we had a, a we were we have a book chapter that's, that's in a book that came out this this fall called "Confronting Anti-Semitism on College Campuses." So, to so all those people saying higher education people don't care about anti-Semitism, incorrect. And we were caring about it before the situation happened. Now, and we have a rich history through another history where we collaborated. And if you want to learn about that history, <laughs> get the book, get the chapter. But what I will say in that is that we call the chapter, it's loosely called uh, white supremacy kissing cousins between Jews and black relationships. The same kind of colonial ideas that are Christian based that were used to subjugate black people were from the same system that would do for people in the Jewish community. So it's not a fight amongst us, again, adding them to the diversity, they already been in there. But the way people are thinking about it, because the way she answered was, there's a process. Well, as the longtime chief judicial officer, there is a process. Is a process when you say the N-word, is a process from sexual assault, is a process when you do graffiti, there'll be a process for anti-Semitism. There is a process. Students have rights and responsibilities per the institution. And her saying that the institution would do that, to call that not supportive, is this grotesquely incorrect? Well, and the, the challenge is there's so oh, white liberal tears are a whole different thing. And I can say that because I'm the one with the white mother on here. I mean, <laughs> gosh, dog, you know, and thinking about these bastions of liberalism, people, what I call right face and right place or only place half the time, you can work in trio. Right. You can work in DEI work. So you can work in um, in in student uh, those kind of places. You can work in athletics. You can cut grass or you can serve food. And it's like it it fits a narrative. How does this challenge of having the black friend, the black colleague that fits kind of fits the description? that works for the system, especially in these liberal spaces, how does that not advance us though, right? And how can we work to break it? Yeah, I think I think to your earlier question about what advice you get to, to black and brown professionals, is you can care about black and brown things and not working in diversity office. We need people who understand black and brown experiences in the financial aid office. We need them not only recruiting, but we need them to be faculty chairs. We need them to be academic advisors. We need them to be student support services, student life team, Greek life, all those things. So in my career, I cut my, I was, I was in a, a multicultural affairs office at one point in my life over my 25 year career. Other than that it was housing, student in life, uh, you know, dean, admissions, other things, uh, institutional research, learning the numbers. I would say that, know your numbers. Because most people, the numbers tell the true story in the fact book, but people walk around like the fact book don't have any facts in it. We don't look at the fact book. It, the disparities are there. 
you should never say that there's disparity. You should look at the fact book. I'm sure there's going to be some disparities. And we have to be able to be able to train, I think, our younger professionals to look at those roles. And I think that we have to retool ourselves as, as midlife professionals if we want to stay in the field to figure out what can we do and how do we move outside of those narrow kind of places you put. What skills do you need to have to make sure you can be the head institutional research person at a campus? What role can you be the person who's the chief development officer? Like that's the things we should be doing because the other part of it, where the money is, is where the power is. And if you don't have access to the money, you don't have very little access to power. I wanna end on this because this gets to it. This gets to it. Because at some point, we all, women, people of color, black and brown folks, or women of color, right? Black women, we or black men, we get in leadership roles. And our entire existence when we're not in a leadership role, we're not the AVP or the VP or the dean or the associate dean or whatever it is. Our entire being is, well, you know, the good old boy system and how the good old boys run stuff. And this gets into your black male misogyny piece, mm -hmm. right? And then we get in leadership roles and we don't lead like we're black or mm -hmm. we don't lead like we're a woman. And we, we immediately lead the way white folks have led, the same yep. way we've complained about the whole time. We lead the exact same way. What is some advice? Why does that happen? And then what is some advice for how we can unpack that a little bit and lead as not just work as our authentic selves, but lead as our authentic selves? Man, I'm so glad you asked this question. I'm gonna push stop video and you see what pops up is love. That's coaching imperative, chief imperative. The thing I ask myself when I do in my work, where is the love in this? So as a coach, and I gotta give critiques or give you know people some help, where's the love in this? If I gotta go tell a group of people who've hired me to get rid of anti-blackness, how do I do it but still show them love? If I got to go tell the person that's the worst thing you could ever done in life and, you know, you, you guys, the athletes are purporting, you know, sexual assault and keeping that same idea that these men are these, we are these uh, creatures on campus, these kind of untamed beasts, athletic. You do know, where's the love in that? Where's the love in your game, homie? If you can't get, get it without doing that, maybe get your game tight, listen to r and I'm going to tell you. Like, where is the love in our work? And I think part of it, in my idea, and what I've seen is that a lot of men are afraid to use the word love. I think, as your colleague commented on you, the thought it was strange. People think that, that somehow love is improper or is too intimate or is too vulnerable. No, it's what we need. Because we can't really know each other and be or be authentic if we're not being vulnerable, if we're not going to the intimate spaces of who we are, if we're not calling back on our grandmas and grandmas, like, act like we had some home training and we know better, if we don't do that, then what are we doing? We are, we are demonizing ourselves. We are letting the trauma take hold of us. And we are helping that at the end of this Black Highlander, it won't be no more Black, but there'll still be a Highlander. There'll be, no, there'll be no more black and brown swordsmen. 
like like uh, Steven in the Django. Candyland will live on. <laughs> well, that's that is so important, you know, understanding that the work starts and ends with you, but it starts and ends with love. But you have to love yourself. You have to love your call. You have to understand that there will be certain, I always realize that I don't care what staff and faculty say about a colleague. I care about what students say. I may not vibe with somebody personally, but if the students say, look, this person, boy, they're the, re cool, cool. They're working in their call because that's who they're there, lack of a better word, to minister to. That's their patient, that's their client, that's their parishioner. And it all starts with being vulnerable enough to love yourself and then first and foremost, love others. Dr. Isaac Carter, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Please let us know where they can, where folks can get in contact with you. How can they get in contact with Coaching Imperative? Um, I thank you very much for the time. Uh, this has been a good conversation. I'm looking for us to have some many more off channel. Brother, uh, you can get in touch with me at coachingimperative.com. Um, and you can find me very easily there. Also, my name is the best SEO engine ever. I S S A C is how I spell how my mother spelled Isaac. So if you type in I S S A C M Carter, there's only one. God mm. intentionally. It's me. Look and you will you. find me, and I'll be happy to work and partner with you in whatever endeavor you have, as long as we can do it, hopefully with love. Mm, I love it, Isaac. We will put your information in the show notes. Thank you again for joining us. Blessings for an amazing 24. Thank you, uh, brother. You started it off. It would be great. Thank y'all for having me. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. If you want to hear more from Adam, visit his website, hearadamspeak.com where you can book him to speak at your organization and hear more about what he has to say about what we talk about here on the show. Now, if you want to support the show itself, there are a variety of ways that you can do that. You can leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, send us an email, or share an episode with a friend. Until next time, stay uncomfortable.